Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk uh, tech, uh, probably Twitter, games, privacy, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff, which, um, to be honest, what else would you be doing on a Wednesday at 7pm? Tonight, uh, behind the mics, we do have Paul. How are you, Paul? Hello. I'm pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Big, big weekend tech this week. Lots to talk about, (laughs) which we'll get to in a second. Has it it been a a good servant for you otherwise? Are you having a good personal weekend tech? Yeah. It's fine. None of my computers have exploded. Everything seems fine. Like we, we, as I'm sure we always endlessly are recalibrating my relationship to social media. <laughs> and uh, also, Ro, how are you? I'm very excited about the fact that I have just archived about 100 gigs worth of stuff out of my Dropbox and whatever. And it's like, mm. oh, my poor little MacBook Pro can breathe again. Um, but I also had a really big win today that's incredibly analogue, um, but it also is carbon dating me. I bought some knee pads from Bunnings to help me do the gardening and they're the most incredible things I've ever Bought. Do they have like uh, little pouches for like tools or like do they embellish the old knee pads these days? No, but they 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 are actually incredibly high tech for what they are. So they've got like a I thought they'd be bits of foam with straps on them, but they've actually mm. got like a hard shell mm. with full on silicon and it's about, you know, two or three inches high. I'm making the hand gestures, wow. um, which is great for our listeners at home. But yeah, and they are incredible, so I'm very excited. They sound good. Um yeah, um, in, yeah. The the kind of uh, sync to your sync to your hard drive with Dropbox things a killer when it does that. I've made that mistake on a few computers. And mm-hmm. you're like, where'd my where'd my memory go? Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies, and um, it is going to be a fun show. Uh, aside from the fact that we do have lots to talk about amongst ourselves, um, we are going to be having a look at. Uh, an interesting uh, initiative in edutech, which is um, something that Melbourne has been focusing on a bit um, recently, but more broadly around the country. Um, in digital is a, um, I guess, a, an indigenous enterprise looking to create better pathways for for young people into tech, and not just focusing on the the nuts and bolts of it, but um, also, uh, I guess, a cultural perspective on on technology, which um, is important. So, Matt Heffernan uh, will be with us uh, in just a few minutes, and. Later on in the show, uh, we're having a chat about an interesting topic. Um, influences do come up from time to time on the show um, and, you know, probably in your own life out there um, from time to time. Um, AI has created new opportunities for, hey, if the influences have been difficult, let's just kind of create our own and, and kind of mash it together. Um, so, yeah, obviously there's a lot to talk about that from a lot of, ang- uh, a lot of angles. So, um, yeah. Uh, Sean Sands from Swinburne University is going to um, take us through that a little bit later. But before then, there is a, a bit going on. Um, yep, the internet is in a flap, uh, as we <laughs> uh, as, as we uh, are known to see it. Um, Ro, what's what's going on here? Well, if any of you use Twitter, you will have seen it lit up like a Christmas tree over our close personal friend Elon Musk, who's thrown down a $44 billion offer to buy a massive share in the platform. Um, And the board has accepted it. Now, 
It's not a done deal. A lot of people are acting like cash has already, you know, crossed hands and all the rest of it. But basically what's happened is the board has accepted his proposal and it's actually still got to go to shareholders and regulators and all that kind of stuff. So it still might not happen. But um, it's a really audacious move um, by a gentleman who has, you know, garnered some enormous headlines in the last very short amount of time. Even if the deal doesn't go ahead, it's, it's priceless publicity. But an interesting side note is that his other big headline grabber, Tesla, lost $125 billion in value um, the day after the Twitter announcement. So it's a complex one with a lot of angles. Mm, so net loss for Elon. Mm. Than that, wow. Maybe maybe he needs an AI kind of version of him just to kind of be running it over there. <laughs> I mean, we, we never know. Maybe he is. Maybe, but that, maybe that's already the case. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, Paul, why, why would he do this? Why would Elon Musk want to buy Twitter? I mean, it's... I mean, who who knows? Like you know, the the inner workings of 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 man. Um, it's you know, lots lots of different kind of kind of reasons. I think you know the publicly stated reasons from his perspective are about you know Twitter as like a societal good. And I think if you saw um, Jack's comments in response to the, to the announcement, it was definitely kind of like Elon's the best person to like take this thing forward. Um, interestingly, sort of also framed it as you know. Twitter actually wants to be a public utility, like the kind of the psychology of like the actual platform wants to be a public utility, but then went on to say, if it has to be a corporation or if it has to be a company, then Elon Musk is the best person to run that. Um, so this weird kind of disconnect between obviously the the psychology like of billionaires and just being able to kind of buy effectively the town square mm. um, while also kind of professing this idea of like you know, ideas around freedom of speech, ideas about making the algorithm, the Twitter algorithm open source. Um, probably the the scariest one, other than all those other scary reasons, you know, the, <laughs> the idea about authenticating all humans, yeah. um, which is, you know, a little bit of like a Doctor Who Cyberman kind of vibe to mm. it. You can sort of hear that. The little kind of Musk Daleks kind yeah, of coming out. Yeah, yeah, just like hovering around. So it's it's sort of, it's it's difficult to tell how much of it is control versus how much of it is some sort of particular you know ideological thing versus how much of it is just a weird sort of tech flex versus how much of it is just twitter's ability to like tank i mean the tesla is a prime example right like twitter's ability to manipulate markets or to have like this kind of outsized influence on markets mm. um and you know we've seen in the past like certainly elon musk has has fallen foul of 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 that of regulators, of even regulators. not even just tanking and you know dead cat bouncing you know stock prices, but actually getting in trouble with regulators for doing it. So, mm. so lots of complicated things intersecting, and and I mean, just who knows? I mean, the the you know coming to back to Jack's comments about it being a public square, like for all of the the massive massive flaws of Twitter as a platform and as an experience, it has been you know incredibly influential in bringing activist communities together and underrepresented communities together and creating like not necessarily always positive change, but at least a space where change can happen, mm. you know, for people and for communities and for cultural groups as well. So it is, it is still an incredibly powerful and positive tool. Um, I wonder if we're going to see like another Arab Spring now with like such tight control over it. And mm. I, I don't kind of, I, I, I like, you know, you could kind of beat it out of me, this kind of like a person can kind of lead this thing. But I don't get the kind of dear leader kind of mentality around these kinds of platforms where a person is the best person to 
It's bonkers. Like we've we've grown past that. Have we though? Like <laughs> apparently not. Apparently not. I mean, I think leadership is always a thing. Like someone making a decision, even you know, if he's able to open source. I mean, because this basically takes Twitter private. Ooh, effectively, mm. it's no longer a publicly traded company if it if it goes through. Like decisions about open sourcing the algorithm, decisions about you know weighting particular things, you know overriding, you know even making kind of moderation ideas like opaque, like the fact that there's kind of no external responsibilities to it, like that those things can all emerge and happen. Like I think I think individual leadership. Like we're still talking about one person. Like even in this conversation, right? We well, are exactly, talk- yeah. yeah. So regardless well, of how it might play out with the tech, like it's the ego show. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the from a uh, it's going to sound a little bit sort of um, one dimensional, but from a privacy point of view, there's suggestions that he can just he'll own all of the data, so he he can just go poking around in your DMs and and looking at all of this stuff. Theoretically, if he wants to get Tesla into a particular country, he can just hand over Twitter data to the government of that country and go, hey, you know, what about that application, etc. So, yeah, I mean, it's not to say things can't happen like that if there is more diverse ownership and people can kind of flock behind an idea and kind of go, oh, yeah, we, we want to do that. But um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of funky. But one of the good things that's been happening, Row, is kind of other sort of platforms of kind of the alternatives have kind of had a bit of a bounce? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Mastodon, which is, it was kind of originally touted as a little bit of an alternative to Twitter and it's um, a really um, cute open source kind of version of, of Twitter, good old microblog. Um, I've got an old Mastodon account. It did occur to me, I've got one of those. I'm not even mm. sure what my login is. But um, yeah, so they've seen an influx of um, nearly 42,000 uh, users in the last 24 hours and um, of those, about 30,000 were brand new users. So um, it's certainly not the kind of numbers that signals a monumental change. Um, Nastodon still tends to fly pretty under the radar. But um, yeah, a really interesting knock-on effect for them. They were probably sitting at home having a cup of coffee, eating a pancake and went, what the heck? (laughs) I do like the Mastodon founder's name as well, uh, Eugen Rochko. I feel like we're going to get some great headlines over, over the year. This is, this is, this is great. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, something did pop up about alternatives to, to this and um, things like you, know, you can get back on the newsletter thing or set up a sub stack or you, know, um, you could go and talk to people that you know, like rather than if you have a wacky joke or joke that you didn't say or joke that you're working on or, or joke that you heard someone, just like text it to your friends and see what they say. Yeah, rather maybe, than Maybe we don't need to all be radically online all the time. Exactly. So maybe it's a, a good good time to kind of like pause and reflect. Um, yes, put your phones down, people. <laughs> um, Ro, um, what's been going on with Reddit? Oh, dear old Reddit. Um, so for about six months, Reddit's been experimenting with a program that they've really innovatively called Community Funds <laughs> to help fund around 13 projects that um, actual Reddit communities have nominated. So, so some of those have been things like a comics tournament, a community design musical artist billboard in Times Square, as well as a digital conference specifically for history buffs. So um, they've basically heralded this pilot program as a bit of a raging success and they've announced um, they're basically going to throw a million dollars including grants of up to 50,000 each um, and in about a month users will be able to submit ideas for projects, events, contests, giving and more. So dear old Reddit giving back to the weirdos and you know which is all of us on the internet. I'm so glad Mildly Interesting is going to have its moment in the sun that (laughs) it has been um, deserving for for all these years. Um, This is great. 
There's nothing to dislike about this. No, I think it's absolutely adorable. You know, Reddit, you know, it kind of shows the best and worst of humanity and this is one of those delightful little bests. Mm. Um, on the worst side of things, though, um, Bored Apes. What's what's going on here, Paul? Bored Apes. Um, so NFTs, uh, All uh, we've talked endlessly about NFTs uh, on the show. This is just another instance of... How susceptible the sort of the tip, not even necessarily the the underlying technology, but how the kind of the broader infrastructure is to just man in the middle phishing attacks. Um, this is probably one of it's not necessarily the largest. I don't know if, if people sort of saw like a was that six hundred million one um, that happened quite recently. This is like a two point four million dollar NFT phishing scam, but it is with probably the most high profile sort of NFT group organization, however we're framing them, um, Bored Ape Yacht Club. Um, and they had their Instagram compromised. And in the time that it was compromised, um, they managed to put up a link, which granted people access to people's um, you know, wallets, so smart contracts. And by clicking on that link, people were basically able to extract the NFTs. And so that, that was worth about 2.5 million US. Um, not a massive amount, but certainly significant. Um, so the most expensive token in that trove, which was Bored Ape number 6,623, um, that one sold for 123 Ethereum, um, which is worth about 354,000. Um, I assume that's all US. Um, and it was only four apes that were stolen. There, there's, there's a sentence. There's a sentence I expected to say when I got up this morning. Um, but yeah, it's just the latest, the latest example of like where a phishing attack and some of the the way that the underlying technology works and this kind of like idea of trustlessness or you know trustless parts of the underlying technology just kind of make make these things susceptible. So yeah, maybe maybe lock up your lock up your apes and lock up your Instagram accounts <laughs> lock as up well. Your Instagram's two factor <laughs> authentication is probably your friend. Oh, I reckon. Triple R. We are now joined on air um, by Matt Heffernan, who is a, a Lareda technologist from Central Australia who has worked in uh, a number of sectors, government, not-for-profits, private industry, and is currently uh, a Master of Applied Cybernetics uh, student at the Australian National University and keen to have a chat to us about uh, in digital schools tonight. Um, Matt, thanks for making time and, and getting on the air with us. Yeah, thanks so much for reaching out. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Curious to know, um, sort of, um, uh, I, I guess, where the need comes from from, from this kind of thing. Um, we've we've spoken to, um, I guess, a, a lot of initiatives and, and people over the years about sort of different pathways into tech and the way um, young people or um, uh, people who don't see a, an obvious way to, to sort of um, sort of um, steer themselves into technology. I'm curious, sort of, what what you saw here and, and thought, okay, this is an opportunity that we have to um, address. Yeah, it's um, an initiative actually that's come from um, Michaela Jade. So she's the founder and CEO of Individual Schools. But, I mean, her vision, I think, is one that I share as well. <clears throat> so all the things that you've just mentioned there around um, sort of a, a gap and um, a, a lack of pathways or a lack of vision for pathways for young people into the technology sector... Um, times that by, I don't know, pick a really high number. <laughs> and it's, it's so much harder for Aboriginal people, Indigenous people in this country um, 
because there, there's all the you know socioeconomic kind of um, markers there which make it really difficult. But it's also um, you know some of the places where individual schools go to. These are really remote places where you wouldn't necessarily. Well, I, I think even that sadly in this country we don't sort of foster this either. Where there might be great internet in these places. But sort of the technology sector and um, STEM in general is not really promoted as a, a viable pathway for a career or for a business. Yeah, I, I think um, looking at one of the videos for uh, I think the the schools program, there was um, you know in 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 the cities it's easy to think about technology as build 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 grow grow mm-hmm. grow compete you know be better than the next person bigger more exciting etc. But um, there were stories from some of the, the elders and people uh, I guess you'd um, consult and work with about um, uh, telling stories and protecting language and kind of um, more of an expression um, as a way into kind of technology and using technology. Is that is that true or, or one of the starting points with what you do? Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely um, a method we use because... I think one of the barriers of entry into technology is um, the, the jargon and the language can be quite foreign, um, especially if you don't have a sort of culture of fostering um, STEM in school systems and so on. Because the school's program is actually working with teachers um, and, and the school as a, as a whole system rather than sort of just directly targeting kids. And what we've found is, sadly, you know, the, from principal down through to teachers, there's usually a, a lack of sort of um, uh, digital technology literacy there. Um, so it, there's a culture there which makes it difficult um, to get into the, these careers. But what we've found with, um, specifically with um, Aboriginal students and um, schools in sort of large, um, with large Aboriginal demographics in the, in the community, um, is that we can use these storytelling methods as a way to ramp up um, bringing in concepts like programming and um, augmented reality. And as as you're as you're doing that, like, is it do you do you find resistance to kind of the, those ideas to integrating those ideas, or is there like a tipping point where people suddenly get it or become like excited and motivated by the the possibilities? Um, <clears throat> I honestly thought that when I first started that we would have a lot of resistance um, from schools and. Um, from teachers and school systems and education departments and so on. But what I've found during my time there uh, is that schools and teachers and, um, you know, governments, other businesses, they're really, really excited about what we're doing. And there's um, a general sort of um, a desire to support the, the program and um, see it succeed, um, which has been, uh, you know, it's, it's taken a layer of cynicism off me, which has been nice. Um, and do you like what do you what do you think it is like that that is create creates that energy or that, that excitement? Is it the the possibility of the technology? Is it the kind of the playful experiences, or is it something that's intangible? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question. I haven't really sat there and thought about why this kind of works. Where maybe some other you know um, programs don't necessarily have that same sort of enthusiasm, but I think we try. I mean, 
to talk a little bit politically, I won't get too political, but I think our existence as Aboriginal people is almost a political statement in of itself. And, you know, having worked in not-for-profit sectors, the types of programs are somewhat... Um, uh, they're saying something about the way in which um, the Aboriginal people or Indigenous people have found themselves in that circumstance. And usually there's a, a layer there which is saying, you know, the, the way in which they're treated has led to this condition or it's, it's those sorts of narratives which exist in a lot of, um, you know, not-for-profit sectors or government sort of intervention programs. While this is basically kind of um, similar in, in that we are coming in and um, coming into in existing systems, what I think the difference is is we're saying um, let us, let's, let's use technology, let's um, build the capacity of these kids, but rather than being a sort of combative position, it's, it's working with all the different sort of um, levels of uh, school governance and, and so on. Interesting. Uh, we were uh, having a bit of a natter about the um, the kind of op-ed that you wrote um, in the Guardian, um, uh, and kind of uh, the idea from um, Anthony Stafford Beer around the purpose of a system is is what it does. Uh, are these the kinds of initiatives that, if we see sort of four or five of these popping up here and there, it starts to re-engineer the system, or, or do you need kind of some kind of grand intelligence kind of designing uh, a better system for Australia and, I, I guess, pathways into tech for, for kids? Oh, that's one of my favourite sayings. <laughs> <laughs> um, gee, it's a really hard one <clears throat> because I think a lot of the time there's a mismatch between sort of the stated intentions of these various systems to what actually happens on the ground and what the outcomes of these systems are. And, you know, the, the beer quote would argue that's, that's the exact purpose. You know, we see huge numbers of um, Aboriginal young people going into the justice system straight through from the school system in the Northern Territory, for example. So I, I think you could probably draw a bit of a link between what's occurring there. Um, but what I think... I think all systems need sort of that outside disruption. Um, systems themselves can't really change um, from within, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I was just thinking about there's there's like such a desire for um, uh, developers and games makers and all of those things. It's just so hard kind of post the great resignation to kind of find a, a, a lot of people to do these things and be super exciting to see um, all these different types of stories and um, ideas kind of percolating through because, yeah, you kind of, if you live in the same postcode, the same, you know, everyone's reading the same ideas and getting the same things and going to the same places and talking about the same things. But um, Australia is such a big place. It'd be great to kind of um, stoke our kind of creative yeah. industries with um, some, some different ideas. Yeah, totally. Um, I think we're starting to see that sort of, emerge a little bit. Hmm. Um, one of the one of the really interesting features that, like that I noticed about the program was about how you were integrating um, elders and young people into using a technology. Is, does that become was that intentional or was that did that just sort of emerge from your sort of people first approach to the program? Um, we had some uh, 
growing pains when we when we first started. Um, so it, it's become really a, a core focus of how we deliver the project, where um, we won't. We, we actually just don't work with schools unless they um, engage with elders or if they reach out to us to help them engage with elders. Um, so that, that's been an intentional thing um, from some of the, the growing pains we had when we were still trying to work out how we could um, you know, foster those types of partnerships. Because it, it's kind of bigger than what we're delivering as, as well because what we're trying to do is foster those relationships and sort of start connecting it so that when we deliver the program and you know go back to our day-to-day -day lives um, there's that relationship that is maintained that we can maybe come back to in a year or so and um, build on. And do you find that there's sort of there's different almost like learning dynamics in, in the schools, depending on like the specific, you know, potentially like elders getting to grips with the technology and young people getting to grips with different aspects of the technology at the same time? Yeah, there's, there's definitely sort of different, I mean, there's varying levels. Um, how, I, I do think that there is sort of um, kind of the crossover appeal though. So usually when we pull out, say, a HoloLens 2, um, then that kind of goes across generations. Everyone wants to have a go of AR or a VR headset because it's just really cool. Um, but definitely with the younger people. So we use um, Minecraft Education Edition, which has a programming interface built into it. Um, and definitely when we're, we're using that to teach some programming concept, um, integrating traditional Indigenous storytelling methods, um, there's definitely sort of a, a larger appeal for the younger folk. But the teachers love it too, I think. Right, so you're creating this kind of cycle of, of, of like, le like in-the-moment learning and sort of ongoing learning for everyone as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so uh, if, if people are interested in, in kind of um, getting involved or it sounds like the, the kind of program that their school's sort of crying out for, how, how do people get involved at a school level or even a student level? Um, is this my time to do a plug? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> why, not, why not, since you said it? Um, if a school wants to get involved um, or, you know, you're a parent listening and want to get involved, um, our public email is hello at indigital.net.au. Um, I need to spell that. I-N-D-I-G-I-T-A-L. Yeah, well, we can we can tweet it out and put it in our, our show notes as well. But um, is there? Yeah, are you, are you can you can you ramp up? Like how how many people can you get going in here? <laughs> um, we're 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 pretty flat out at the moment, but you know, more the better, I think. Amazing. We will uh, we will do our level best to, to help you with that. But um, congrats! It's a it's a great initiative, and uh, excited to see how it how it takes shape o over the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We are now joined by um, Sean Sands, who is a professor of marketing and the department chair, Department of Management and Marketing at Swinburne University of Technology. Um, and new research led by um, Sean uh, has looked at human versus AI influencers on Instagram. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, Sean. 
So, um, first up, the obvious question, what is an AI influencer? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, essentially, it's, a, it's an influencer that you would see in a social media context, but they're, they're not human. They, they come across as human. They, they look human in terms of they have a physical appearance and they do all the things that you would expect humans to do, like communicate, um, but they are controlled by some form of AI. How, how far does this AI representation go? Are we talking like AI-generated, like, imagery for the people and AI generated kind of like chatbots and text like where what are the dimensions of the the AI part yeah there's two parts I guess there's the actual AI generated physical appearance of the um of the actual uh, you know, person in quotes um and who looks very human-like and some some cases very human-like and in other cases they're much more cartoonish but um that's the first part and the second part is the actual the the kind of conversation part as well and the Talking to and responding to to comments um, through the social platforms, and 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 kind of where where the most interesting aspects of this um, for you, like what's what's most exciting about this as a as a an emerging thing. I think it's it's kind of a, well, interesting from a kind of weird perspective, and that you know we can't really believe that this is happening, so we kind of got our <laughs> kind of interest. Um, and the second thing is just that um, we're starting to see lots of brands take this really seriously. And I think you can, when you start to think about why, it kind of becomes a little bit apparent. If you're, you know, if you're, if you've got a Kardashian or someone who's your spokesperson, and you know they they go and do something negative in the press, and you kind of lose control of that of that brand perception. But if you have an entity that's, you know, physically controlled um, in terms of being an AI generated you know, entity, then you have uh, more more control over that, that message. Does this mean we can all just go to the beach if Twitter bots are kind of talking to kind of virtual influencers on it? Can we have we kind of found a way out for ourselves? Yeah. Look, I think it's it's really interesting. I think we got thinking about you know how does this come about, and I think what we've seen more broadly outside of social channels is AI starting to make recommendations to us in a number of different ways. If you think about your Netflix account, you're getting recommendations about shows that you might like. If you think about your Amazon Prime, you're getting recommendations about products or books that you might like based on what you've done previously. It's kind of an extension of that. It's taking information about you and and what what this platform knows about you and being able to make personalised recommendations to on, on mass. I, I do like that idea. Like we've been feeding feeding these machines so much data for for so long now, and you know, depending on what services you're using, you might get a badge or a token or a five percent discount on something. I love the idea that it yeah. spits out this kind of uh, little friend that's like, "Hey, um, I noticed you've got two hours free in your calendar this afternoon. Let's play some table tennis or something like that." <laughs> that's like Absolutely. really really reaching for the potential of what it could be here, even if it is a little bit silly and. Um, you know, we've all seen her, and we know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, look, I think where, where we're heading is definitely um, there will be, I believe, some form of AI social influencer in terms of someone that you might have, you know, might help you manage your life, might help you manage your schedule, as you say, might, you know, you might have conversations with. We're starting to see also people being you know, much more willing to hand over medical information and talk about personal issues with, with AI as well rather than talking to a person. So there's a whole range of different things in the kind of health context. Yeah, I'm really curious from um, a really commercial standpoint. Obviously, um, influencers in and of themselves are now part of the marketing budget and there's even, you know, a couple of really competitive aggregator platforms that match your brand up with influencers and even manage your posts and payments and all that kind of stuff. If um, brands on a really practical level do start to move away from giving, you know, Kylie Jenner three million bucks to um, put up a post about something, what are going to be the financial 
financial implications for brands? Are they going to have just more control and nicer budgets or, you know, could some damage be done to the hip pocket? Yeah, look, it, it depends on, on who your influence is. I think, you know, whether it's a human influence or, or a virtual influence, so we're seeing a range in kind of the fees for, for um, you know, connecting, and that's really based on the number of followers that either a human or a virtual influencer has right, in terms of their reach. So it, it can go either way in terms of budget. I, it's like kind of picking up on that a little bit, I'm really curious about, like, what, what trick in our psychology are these kind of AI influencers exploiting? Like, wh- why do they work? Yeah, look, I think, again, it comes back to our, our willingness to, to hand over information to, to virtual entities and, and you know, to, um, to AI and to actually accept recommendations from AI. And I think we've come to learn that AI can learn about us and make relatively intelligent recommendations about things that we might like. So there's this kind of spillover effect from all the kind of AI that we interact with, you know, Google Home and all the other things that we kind of interact with to this, to this social space. So are we are we basically is is part of it just the boiling frog syndrome as we've kind of slowly been desensitized like yeah. along the way and this is just the next someone's just cranking up the heat on our pot? Yeah, exactly. And we're gonna just wake up in, you know, five, ten years time and it's gonna be, you know, our social social streams will be fully you know, virtual essentially. You know, they, I don't think we'll actually end up there, but I think that's you know, that's a good a good um way to think about it. There's an interesting thing. It's either in the uh, the sort of um, synopsis of the research or in the the media release, um, talking about how historically, kind of paid media, kind of storytelling has kind of you know waned a little bit, and sort of the authentic kind of Snoop Dogg or um, Martha Stewart has kind of like stepped in and said, "Hey, by the way, like this is fun or, or interesting," um, and that was kind of like things swung that way instead. I kind of feel like this is going back the other way where we're just kind of like manufacturing attention and interest in a very controlled way. But potentially, you know, us, all of us might kind of slip through the fingers of this this kind of um, the design here. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, with, even with the human influence of money plan, we, we ultimately know that they're being paid, that, that they're doing this, you know, not out of the goodness of their heart, but mm. that they're promoting something um, and, you know, selling to us essentially. And we, we, we do have this kind of awareness of how brands communicate and, and try to sell. So this is just a kind of evolution of that. And I guess in some respects, I think people probably would put a little bit more trust in AI depending on the product that they're promoting. If it's, you know, if it's a, if it's a, you know, holiday or something like that where you need to physically experience it, they're probably not going to believe in AI entity. But if you're comparing television sets and you're getting advice based on, you know, some kind of metric like that, then you might be more willing. Mm. I mean, this is a Western point of view that I'm kind of giving you here. I understand in other markets, like, it's hugely popular just to go, oh, you know, what does Paul think or what does Roe think? And, you know, Paul's kind of spooky televisions and Roe's got a milkshake idea and... It's it's much it's much more accepted to just kind of say I'm going to have to get this from a Google review or from you know a third party kind of uh, aggregator or something like that. So it may as well be a you know a rabbit with blue hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, very specific. Big cultural differences. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in that idea of um, almost the authenticity gap. Like almost as though there feels like maybe there's a audiences have a different relationship to authenticity whether it's coming from a person or a brand and it feels like i mean correct me if i'm wrong but you're saying that potentially there's there's a level of trust with a brand because people know that it's not real so there's like a weird almost um contradictory level of authenticity there yeah there's definitely a a kind of level of there's, there's authenticity in terms of you know you know that they're 
you know, presenting kind of an authentic image, and then there's kind of authenticity in that we know that they they're kind of you know doing what they tell us they're doing. They they are selling to us. They are a brand. They are you know they are trying to persuade us. Um, but let's you know let's let's recognise that and, and hope that they do that in a, in a kind of um, civilised manner. <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> Um, one of the other pieces of um, things that you talked about in the research is this idea of like micro-targeting um, or individualized influencers, and I just mm. I was curious about what that would actually look like in practice. Yeah, I think this is this is not here yet, but it's if you think about you know the boiling frog example you spoke of, it's where we may end up, and it's kind of taking the recommender en- engines that we have embedded in our Netflix and Amazon Prime accounts and those kind of devices, and that know-how and AI knowledge, and if that eventually you know, is integrated into social media, and we think that it possibly can be in the future, then there is that opportunity for one-to-one uh, influencing, and that one-to-one influencing very much is understanding you as a customer, what you like, what you love, who you network with, who you communicate with, and then talking to you as an individual. And in the, in the, in the work that you've done, would that literally be a sort of an AI-generated character designed by a brand to get me to buy things that the brand wanted by exploiting all of the weird quirks in my psychology. Yeah, look, it, it could be as, as as realistic as a as in you know it physically looking like a human, like following a, following an Instagram account that has a you know a face, a body, a, you know looks indistinguishable from from another person, um, and that's just generated and, and uh, built by by, by 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 like an AI engine. And are these? I've I've followed uh, Lil Michaela for a little while because I, mm-hmm. I, I I do think I seem to recall sort of her being one of the the first ones to kind of um, be in this space. But you, you yeah. you've named a few other ones like uh, Knox Frost and is there a kind of ar- archetype that's coming through? Are they kind of all young and cute and kind of like one of the gang? And what, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, there's there's. Definitely different ones. I think the ones that are more human-looking um, tend to be, like you say, probably more younger and um, you know cute in that kind of um, respect. But there is a, a whole range of different influences of the virtual that um, I suppose go to even just being almost like cartoon characters. And if you think about it, I mean, brands have been using virtual entities for many years. You think about like Kellogg's and Frosty, the um, you know the the Frosty. Um, uh, Tiger, right, with 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 Kellogg's brand. Yeah, that's that's essentially a virtual entity that was talking through you know, TV communications. So it's almost like a next step evolution of, of that kind of brand. Colonel Sanders, you know, the the original AI influencer. Finger looking good. Exactly, exactly. Um, so if you, if you're kind of uh, keen on this stuff and you want to kind of dive into it, where where are the where's the treasure and, and the goods on kind of the development of this? Where can people look a little bit further? Do you think? I think um, a lot's happening on the Instagram platform in terms of virtual influencers. They, they tend to be in that space. Um, there's a couple of um, website aggregators you mentioned that actually aggregate information about virtual influencers. So just a quick Google can actually get you quite quite deep, quite fast. Um, and in terms of countries, that predominantly... Uh... Oh, you there, Sean? We may have actually um, lost our guest. That is okay, because we do have uh, some other stuff that we can do. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.
Just a few things we wanted to call out. Um, Ro, there is some uh, game stuff that you wanted to point out. There's absolutely some game stuff. So regular listeners of the show will know about our absolutely fabulous co-host, Maze Wallen, and they've been deeply involved in organising this. So big props there to Maze. Um, so Game Workers Australia, which is a brand new um, union for game workers, is launching on May Day, Sunday, May the 1st. You can register to attend their launch party in person in Sydney or via stream and tickets are free there's they've got prizes and all sorts of good stuff and there's also an exclusive launch discount if you decide to join um you can dig up the details for that on eventbrite nice um i do have a declaration on this one um we have been doing a a little bit of work uh in my other life with uh green music australia but they've been uh smashing it out of the park with uh, a piece leading up to the election around climate and uh no music on a dead planet which is uh, an initiative to get young people and, and music fans to, to um, vote for the planet when the election comes around uh, on, on May 21. But uh, aside from the, the big stuff, like um, a bunch of artists kind of getting on board from uh, last week, uh, Earth Day on, on Friday, um, people like uh, Budra, uh, Kevin Parker of Tame Impala, um, Jake Taylor of In Hearts Wake, uh, Montaigne, Jimmy Barnes, uh, Living End, Didiri, who we played earlier in the show, um, there's heaps of them. Um, they've now kind of ratcheted it up a little bit with a part of it called um, Save Our Songs and they're declaring uh, their songs to be um, endangered or at risk, which indeed they are if uh, if we don't take uh, climate action. Um, and people have just kind of jumped in with both boots, which is great. So acts like uh, Montaigne uh, Regurgitator, um, who've really done something interesting and taken a track off everywhere. You can't get it on YouTube or Spotify or anywhere anymore um, for now. Uh, Kim Churchill, Ella Hooper, uh, When Children Collide, uh, Chella, Sky City Gold, Haku Hands are, are, are kind of saying our songs and our music are at risk. Um, but we can kind of do something there. Um, we can kind of uh, force the conversation um, with our federal parliament um, this month and uh, next month and, and with the new parliament that forms. So, yeah, if you want to save these songs, um, you can go and check out uh, greenmusic.org.au slash no music. And there is heaps of stuff going on around um, the country at the moment. So... That's interesting. Um, there is a Hot Wheels movie coming out. This is wild. <laughs> there is a Hot Wheels movie coming out. So I absolutely love the sound of this. Um, Mattel is actually, you know, an official partner. Mattel Films, which is a relatively new outfit, um, which has got the Barbie movie coming out shortly, are going ahead with a live-action Hot Wheels movie. So Mattel is getting more and more serious and uh, teaming up with J.J. Abrams and his bad robot um, you know, company, film production company to get this puppy on the on the go. So it's it's going to be a bit of an interesting one. We don't know a whole lot of goss about storylines or anything like that or any of the stars attached. But I must say I am curious to hear more. How do you turn that into a movie? Fast, tiny, fast and the furious. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the way to go. That's the pitch. <laughs> Tokyo Drift. <laughs> tiny Vin Diesel driving tiny cars. <laughs> You've heard some pictures lately, I can tell. I, I'm, yeah, I'm all, I'm all about that. Like, I, you know, it's, it's such a weird, maybe it's not. It's just like, what, what IP do we have? Like, let's get, get in the IP mines, boys. Let's figure it out. Let's Where's your sense out. of adventure, Paul? It's a, it's in a tiny 
monster truck driving off to the sunset. Oh, I love it. <laughs> we are going to say a few things and then we might have a, a, a bit of a track for you. Um, thank you very much to our guests uh, this evening, uh, Matt Heffernan and Professor Sean Sands. Um, thank, thank, let's thank ourselves, as Snoop would do. Um, thank you, Ro. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Warren. Um, also, Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy and podcaster Matthew Hall. Be safe. Good night, everyone. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.